Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's me, it's me, it's your history, F-R-I-E-N-D. I think I spelled that right. Yeah, so we are ready to go, guys. Thanks for joining me again. After my unfortunate hiatus last week, I'm feeling much better, thanks, and Thanks for all your get well wishes. I'm still a little bit coldy and a little bit sniffly, but bless me, I'll be fine. I'm more than willing and ready to get back into this. So if you guys were not aware, I have recently released a book. As in, it's finally available. As in, I got my five free copies. As in, hopefully you should soon get yours if you pre-ordered them. And if you haven't pre-ordered them, go and do that now. Go and search A Matter of Honor with the English spelling, or simply my name, Zach Twomley, in Amazon or elsewhere, and it should come up. If not, email me, I'll send you the link, or simply click on the Buy Now tab on the uh, Facebook page, and that will do the job too. Failing that, get yourself a t-shirt in the usual place, and support this podcast. Be a history friend by giving a small amount every month. Just to remind you guys, if we get five more subscribers... That means I can justify doing a four, how would I describe it, quarterly, quarterly annual, quarterly annual giveaway? I don't know. I didn't do English, guys. I did history, so sue me, whatever. But yeah, four times a year, I'm going to give away a book and a t-shirt at the same time. And all you have to do to be in with the chance of winning is to give a small amount every month to those wonderful history friends that already do this. You guys are the best, and you know that I love you. I would list all your names, but there's just so many of you, although not that many of you, so I need some more. So yeah, thanks very much for listening, guys. It's great to be back. It's great to have my book in my hot little hands after such a long, long process. Huge thanks and huge props go out to Vincent Rospond at Wing Tassar Publishing for sorting me out with this. And just in case you weren't aware, it's a three-book deal. So if you thought it was bad now... Wait till you see till I have three books out. My ego will be so big, you won't even be able to... Well, you don't see me, but it'll somehow... It'll take over the podcast. We're all in trouble. Everyone's in trouble, but not as much trouble as William III of the House of Orange. That was not a forced segue at all, but hey, I'm sure you're all willing, ready, and able to get back into this, so you don't mind too much. Let's get on with it. Thanks again, guys, for listening to When Diplomacy Fails a member of the Agora Podcast Network.
Welcome to the 8th episode on the Franco-Dutch War. In the last episode, two weeks ago now, we saw how Britain and France edged under a veil of secrecy into an agreement which would have profound implications for European history. Of those actors most concerned with what Charles II and Louis XIV were up to at this time was Johann de Witt, the man we all know and love, the grand pensionary of the States of Holland, and the de facto guiding force of the Dutch Republic, though not immune to intrigues from his fellow countrymen as we've seen. In the background too was arguably de Witt's major rival from the other era of Dutch governmental structure, William of Orange, leader of the House of Orange and the tenacious counterweight to everything de Witt wished to implement. In episodes gone by, We saw how Charles' sister Minette travelled to Britain to advance the Treaty of Dover, and in this episode we examine how she and Charles' nephew William III also made this trip that same year, and what it meant for Britain. To cap the episode off, we'll examine Louis XIV's character and pose the question of whether he was really angry enough at the Dutch to launch a full-scale invasion of their republic, as some histories say he was, as well as the important question of whether he was motivated by passion or ambition. I hope you'll stick with this very important leading episode into the actual war itself. I promise we'll get there eventually. Trust me, we will. As we now take you to March 1670, where an impressive orange prince was trying to find a way to land in his adopted home. People in Parliament occupy themselves with private animosities and petty quarrels, and think little of the national interest. It is impossible to credit the serene indifference with which they consider events outside their own country. William III of the House of Orange Perhaps because he was in a good mood, as his sister would be arriving within a few months, or perhaps he genuinely believed it was high time to see his nephew once again. Whatever the reasoning behind it, in March 1670, Charles II sent a formal invitation to William of Orange to visit Britain. William had been suggesting the trip himself for many months beforehand, and believed it would be a handy way to remove himself and his allies from the suffocating confines of a regent-dominated republic. With his trip to his royal home away from home in Britain, William reminded his contemporaries that he belonged at the forefront of Dutch society, that his name was fed by royal and not merely traditional blood. At the same time as well, William had more practical reasons for making the trip. The concern of the considerable debts which Charles's father borrowed from the House of Orange, and which they had yet to pay back. For these reasons, as much as the psychological ones, William would make the journey to London in October of 1670, unaware that he was about to arrive in a country led by a conspiratorial king who was in the process of putting the finishing touches upon a policy 
which only the closest few of his advisors appreciated. Beneath that level of intrigue, there were further still levels of risk, deceit and conspiracy, as only the Earl of Arlington and his ally Clifford understood the extent to which Charles had committed his country to spiritually as well as practically doom the Netherlands. Regardless of the reality which lay beneath, William's visit would have to go off like any other, and despite how proud he may have been of the duping, Charles would have to keep his recent schemes totally quiet when amongst William Moore his allies. This Anglo-Dutchman, Charles recognised, was remarkably difficult to figure out. The difficulty Charles had in figuring out his nephew was twinned with William's difficulty in trying to please a number of people at once. First of all, his aunt happened to be married to Louis XIV's brother, a linkage in the royal families which many historians gloss over, but which makes this era all the more interesting because it only demonstrates the extent to which history repeats itself. If you thought everyone being related at the time of the First World War was something, wait till you get a load of this. Pretty much everything that follows in these few decades can be boiled down to a family affair, in a way. But in William's case, he was always aware that, while he naturally felt inclined to solicit aid from his British uncle, there was no reason why his French aunt and uncle might not be able to help out also. Considering the rivalry which was about to come between Louis and William, It really does seem somewhat juicy to read the advice Louis gave the young Prince of Orange, as he made the decision to travel to London in the summer of 1670, Louis told William on his invitation to London. That this honour was but a step to a higher promotion, namely, which his ancestors had so lawfully and meritoriously exercised in the state, that he, the King of France, would be pleased to speed him along that path. Not only did Louis have the resources and know-how to aid William, and not only would this have been really, really helpful to William, since having the support of the King of France for the succession to your somewhat technical throne is obviously a good thing, it also had the potential to ruin William's reputation if word got around that the King of France was orchestrating things for William behind the scenes, particularly if it turned out that Louis was simultaneously plotting against the Dutch Republic. The second thing William had to worry about was, of course, Charles, and what schemes that uncle of his may have been concocting. As we saw, Charles would have at least been able to find common ground with William, as they mourned together the loss of Charles's sister and William's aunt, Minette. After these similarities, though, the uncle-nephew relationship becomes a tad, well, awkward, really. Antonia Fraser, in her biography of Charles II, records that a portrait of William III hung in the king's bedchamber at Whitehall. The portrait was of a time long since past. Within it, Charles's late sister Mary was standing close to the young William, who then was no older than eight years old. It is worth considering the simple fact, as Antonia Fraser does, that through constantly gazing or even seeing the portrait on a regular basis, Charles had become used to the idea of William as a boy in his head. Whenever he had seen him in the past, it had always been over the subject of his upbringing. William had been an orphan since Mary's death in 1660, and at the tender age of 10, the young Prince of Orange had been passed around like a hot potato between the Republic that feared him and the kingdom that really just couldn't afford him. This, of course, didn't stop both the Regent Dutch Party and the King's officials 
arguing over how William should be brought up, nor did it make it any easier for William to decide where his loyalties or even his true home lay. He must have felt somewhat stateless, with so many relatives across the continent, from a great-aunt in Brandenburg to cousins and kings dotted through Britain and France. I find it baffling that this is the same William III who would soon rule over the British Isles. My historical sense tells me that this is what makes a brilliant story. Not only were the origins incredible, but the outcome was completely unexpected. Of course, on a small tangent, what you may not know is that my Irish sense is tingling too, because through no real fault of his own, William III of the House of Orange would spawn the Orange Order of Northern Ireland, which, if you don't know what it is, let's just say Irish history has a testy relationship with it, especially in the North. Orange Order, look it up. And if there happens to be any Orangemen or women listening to this, I hope you can learn something from your unconscious founder. I hope, on the other hand, we can all appreciate the bizarre set of circumstances which declared that a parentless Dutch boy from a semi-royal house, a powerful French uncle and a broke British uncle, went on to have such a profound impact on Ireland. History is really weird sometimes. Anyway, so Charles was about as perplexed by his half-breed nephew as you really could be. And Tony Fraser wrote that Charles used to moan to the French ambassador about how William was too passionate a Hollander, too much a Protestant. The king's surprised that this should be so in view of William's upbringing, did he expect a Catholic-orientated Frenchman, betrays a certain naivety. William strikes me as the man who liked his friends serious and his conversations intense. Charles liked to party, he liked women, and he liked money. Both were nice people, if you got them at a good time. Both could reportedly be honourable and brave when the time came. In William's case, it's time to shine is fast approaching. But at the same time, both could be cruel and sneaky in their pursuit of a goal. William's displays of such qualities are not as flaunted, but we will still come to them, while Charles's scheming qualities have already been noted. It's up to you to decide whether you see them as impressive or questionable. I tend to regard them as a bit of both. Remember the major reason William had wanted to travel to Britain in the first place. He had, of course, been invited, but for many years he had seen the value in pursuing the monies which were owed to him, the House of Orange and of Stuart, had a long history of borrowing and lending, which dated to before Charles II's time. But just because the houses were now entangled in familial terms, did not mean that William either wanted to or could afford to forgive old debts. Taking back your old semi-crown in the Republic is an expensive business, as Charles II could tell his nephew. While Charles's restoration may have been more straightforward, William nonetheless may have seen parallels between their situations. In other words, William may have hoped that Charles would give him some help. What a coincidence, Charles would say, because he had been hoping that William would help him. Without giving too much away, Charles wanted to intimate at least something of his plans for a war with the Dutch. Maybe not even so much for a war with the Dutch, but for a war with the Regent Republic that Charles could present as holding William down. Perhaps in the hope that William would agree to be the puppet which Louis and Charles needed him to be if they were to conquer the Netherlands, so totally. As it happened, when Charles allegedly confessed to William his favouring of Catholicism, which Charles tried to use as a kind of stepping stone into telling him more of the plan, 
It was then that William offered his rebuke, which then provoked the too passionate a Hollander, too much a Protestant line from Charles to the French ambassador later on. Charles's alleged confession was, in my view at least, the British king trying to test the waters with William. He wouldn't just outright confess the Treaty of Dover and all that he and Louis had planned right there and then, but he would still try and keep William on in the back of his mind as the future ruler of the rump state of the Netherlands, which William was intended to control. I've used allegedly a good bit in the past few sentences, you may have noticed, and I did it because I don't find Charles's Catholic outburst all that convincing. It was apparently on the word of a bishop in Charles's court, whom William expressed his surprise to, that Charles would so openly defend Catholicism, that historians have since reported Charles's outburst in support of Catholicism to William as fact. Whether it was true or not, it does demonstrate that William was an unwilling tool of Charles, even as he tried to gain a better rapport with him. As far as Charles and Louis were concerned, the idea that William could be a patriotic Dutchman and defend his country in a nationalistic sense didn't gel with the fact that his House of Orange had been put through the ringer by the regent's regime, hence Charles's belief that he could appeal to William's ambition by perhaps, maybe, sort of, allegedly bringing up the idea that Britain and France were about to launch a alleged war against the regent regime, if not the Dutch Republic. Well, this is a roundabout way of saying that neither kings saw Dutch nationality, they merely saw the individuals and the governments which had held William down. And they believed that William would be burning for revenge because of all that had happened, but they didn't account for the young man's conviction or tenacity, qualities which would, it has to be said, take both Louis XIV and Charles II by surprise. I'm still on the second point here, although I know this has dragged on a bit. William had to think of his motives carefully in Britain, because he believed, somewhat naively we may think, that Charles was looking out for his interests. If he was oblivious to the Treaty of Dover, and if the regent regime were stonewalling his attempts to further his ambitions at home, perhaps his uncle would like to help. Charles had no love for Johann de Witt or the regent regime as we know, but his plan had already been set, and just like everyone else who wasn't in on the true nature of the plan, William would be a dupe until the very last moment. That being said, William's visit did give the British people something to talk about. For four successful months he dined and wined in public, stayed in Arlington's house, which in itself is an incredible fact since Arlington had been so instrumental in the treaty which would soon bring such disaster to William's home, and of course William also received the customary honorary doctorates from Oxford and Cambridge. I'm not jealous at all. He went down a treat with the people, as Peter Gale in his history of the period noted that the British people made clear their all-round expressions of admiration for the simplicity, the self-command and the intelligence of the young man. It certainly boded well that William was already a hit with the common people. Critically for the succession, which Charles by his very nature remained obsessed with, William was given a more advanced rank than he may have hoped for. He was placed ahead of Charles's cousin, the severe military man known as Prince Rupert of the Rhine or of the Palatinate. This Prince Rupert came from the branch of the House of Stuart, which had married into the Palatinate. 
You may remember Frederick V, also known as the Winter King, and his wife Elizabeth from their Thirty Years' War fame. Well, don't forget them or their large family, because they'll become really important later. To put it into context, and I took a long time trying to figure this out, just for you guys, the current Queen of Britain, Queen Elizabeth II, at least she is at the time of recording this, bless her, is the great... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And you have to say great 11 times granddaughter of Frederick V of the Palatinate. I may have got that wrong, but... I spent a good hour trying to figure that out, and I drew a lot of family trees. It's about as accurate as I can get it. So, say great 11 times, and that's how far back the dynasties go. But as we'll see later on in this long-winded, long-arching story, the Palatinate family, which Frederick V's numerous children spawned, would in fact throw the troubled succession in Britain a lifeline at the dawn of the 18th century, just when they needed it the most. Elizabeth II who we know today is the Queen of Britain, is in many ways the result of this. Anyway, so that's a massive tangent, but let's get back to it. So ironically, Charles was encouraged that William continued to ask for aid from him, since he believed that this signified his willingness to become a pliable tool in the future. While William remained encouraged by Charles's limited payment of his debts, as limited as possible, and the idea that his uncle may indeed want to help him despite the whisperings of those sneaky regents back in Holland that something was up. In terms of William, he would become less and less convinced that Charles had his best interest at heart by the time he would leave for home. But throughout his stay, he at least wanted to believe that his uncle had his best interests at heart. Speaking of the regents, this brings me at last to my third point, which William would have to concern himself with. While four months can sound like a short length of time, it was a lifetime in the complicated and paranoid world of Dutch domestic politics. 
It didn't take long for the absence to take on a more ominous shape in the Republic. William was gone so long because he was collecting monies and materials to secure his position. William was purchasing his position from Charles to cash in at a later date. William was going to return with an army and the war would only end when Charles could guarantee William's place as supreme ruler of the Netherlands. All of the imagined scenarios hid the fact that William was remarkably reserved and calm during his visit from October 1670 to early February 1671. Perhaps he had learned his lesson from before when he had tried to lobby the states of Zealand as a counterweight to Holland with results that divided a lot of people and fell short of what the young prince wanted. Utilising his legendary patience and noted tact, William was at this stage getting used to playing the great game of European chess. The great game, as Tyrion Lannister made us all aware of, was terrifying, but William played to win. In order to do this, though, he'd need more pieces on the board first. An ally of DeWitt's noted of the mood at home that They are convinced that he, William III, is serving the state ill and that he is trying to strengthen the understanding between France and England so that those two may work for his elevation. In the words of Peter Gale, not exactly the biggest fan of the House of Orange, How far from the truth this all was, and yet how understandable in view of the dark clouds the Hague could see gathering on the international horizon. While the true extent of Charles's treachery in the Treaty of Dover wasn't known to a wide audience, it would be wrong to say that a wily statesman like Johann de Witt expected nothing from Charles, even with the Triple Alliance in play. The visit of Charles's sister the previous year was far too convenient, and when rumour mixed with fact reached de Witt from his ambassador in France, a wonderfully named Peter de Groot, it wasn't long before de Witt was looking for the enemy everywhere. Think about it, you learn of an Anglo-French alliance in some form and guess that its target is your state and then a disgruntled young prince just so happens to travel to one of these countries and just so happens to be related to both kings. He spends a great deal more time there than you would expect it and returns a good deal jollier about his position than he had been when he had left. De Witt may have gotten to know the young Prince of Orange and to be honest I wish more information was available on their earlier relationship but he didn't know him well enough to know what William was capable of. If he had, he would have known that William had been not quite repulsed, but certainly taken back by Charles's forwardness, and that any anti-Dutch league was in the heads of Charles and Louis, and certainly not William. When De Witt's aforementioned ambassador, whose name we'll never forget, Peter de Groot, reported home from France the following, De Witt's Gears must have been well grinded. In line with the idea that William would use Charles to help orchestrate a coup in the Netherlands, de Groot's report went, It has been judged wise to take that course in order not only to dispel jealousy of, but inspire sympathy towards the King of England. The better to disrupt the commerce of a state that is monopolising all and dictating to all kingdoms. It is thought that the best way of putting a successful stop to all of this is to turn the Republic into a sovereignty and to place it in the hands of the Prince of Orange, who, thus put under an obligation to his protectors, may be expected to serve their interests. Regarding the idea that Charles may declare war on the Dutch in the name of William, DeWitt noted in an understated judgment as though merely 
gauging a scientific theory and not weighing up critical questions of national sovereignty or security. Not altogether credible, but not to be brushed aside, either. It was certainly easier to believe the straightforward story that the Prince of Orange was up to his old tricks again. It was perhaps less easier to believe, but certainly it was more terrifying too, that a league was actively being created solely to destroy Dutch independence, and that William III had no more to do with it and had no more power to stop it than Johann de Witt did himself. So to summarise, William III had to consider France, Britain and his home politicians during his timely stay in Britain. Which means, yes, I could have just summarised all of the previous podcast into that one sentence, but hey, you wanted to know all that information, so there it was. When William returned home in February 1671, it was to a republic still divided over what to do with this future. Beset with the traditional cocktail of domestic problems, the Dutch also had to come to terms with the aforementioned clouds on the horizon. It'd be wrong to present the Dutch as blindly carrying on while their European house burned down around them, but what of the instigator of this fire? In the past, we have examined Charles's underrated role in bringing the Treaty of Dover into being, some would say, to death, but none of that story means anything if we do not contrast it and link it with the other major partner in the scandal, Louis XIV. Was he really mad enough at the Dutch to launch such an effortsome venture in their direction? If he was, was it due to reasons later attested to by historians, or was it a simple desire for money, power, and glory? Did Louis, in short, truly hate the Dutch and the person of Johann de Witt enough to declare war on them? Let's find out. Getting to the bottom of a man's psyche these days is one thing, as any woman will tell you, but getting to the bottom of a king who lived over 300 years ago was quite another. The world of Louis XIV seems chasms apart from ours, with its European-centred focus, its obsessions for glory, its economics geared towards war, its borders always in flux and great changes only a campaign away. When we consider how unstable everything was in the 17th century, and the turmoil that had come before the events that we're covering here, in the form of the Thirty Years' War and, well, everything else, and that there was no guiding system of nations to police state behaviour, like the United Nations or European Union or Courts of Justice, diplomacy must have seemed like a critically important sphere upon which really the future independence of your own country, and in fact yourself, would hang on. If you add this to the fact that one's diplomats or the availability of information was the one thing preventing your state from being swallowed up or passed over, we can begin to imagine what it must have been like for men like Johann de Witt, the stress must have been immense. Certainly in Louis's case, his situation was far stronger. He was, after all, absolute monarch over the largest and most populous state in the West. None of his rivals could match his command of resources or his power over state policy. Above all, though, and the roundabout point I'm trying to make, is that Louis was responsible for his state's glory because, if we are to remember that famous line attributed to him, although he may not have actually said it, he is, or he was, the state. Such an all-powerful status proved a blessing and a curse. It means that we blame Louis for anything bad that befell France in the course of Louis's reign, but on the other hand it means that Louis was free to create and pursue his own policies, and sometimes they didn't necessarily make sense. 
You may remember before that we analysed the theory of historian John A. Lynn, who basically wrote the Bible on the French wars which occurred during Louis' reign. In his book on the wars of Louis XIV, titled The Wars of Louis XIV, Lynn argued that Louis' phases of wars can be split into three different categories. These categories aren't related by geography or circumstances, they were instead related to the personal growth of Louis, to his changing ambitions, to his need to react to the situation. Few other factors attest so blatantly to what it means to be an absolute monarch. Whereas Johann de Witt did his best with Dutch foreign policy and sought to guide it through different eras of change and cooperation, Louis' foreign policy serves as a kind of story about his growth as a man as much as his growth as a ruler. Therefore, when we come to the Dutch War, we see Louis as a man in his late 20s, still very much eager for war and to bring his country to glory. During the course of the war he was about to launch, Louis' stance would change, and he would come to associate glory not with expansion, but defence, arguing that his glory was preserved so long as no foreign enemy entered French lands. For now, though, glory through military success and expansion was a key building block within Louis' character. He was expected to go to war, thanks in part to the fact that he was the leader of the warrior caste of French society, the nobility, all of whom held their own ambitions and desires to acquire glory and distinction on the battlefield. He had been playing with soldiers since he was able to walk, guys. He had already marched with dummy rifles and organised military-style charges with his friends before he was in his teens. War was everywhere in Louis' world. One is reminded of the scene where one of Louis's mistresses attempts to promote her nephew to Louis without success. It was only when this nephew was wounded on the battlefield, in fact during the course of the Dutch War, that the mistress rejoiced. Her nephew, it was understood, had distinguished himself and acquired glory. It was now time for the king to see him, and for that glory to be transformed into fame. Nor was this nephew an atypical example. We take it for granted that this era was one defined by war, but it is important to actually clarify what that means or what it meant to the people that lived through it in one of the most militarily capable kingdoms in Europe. To Louis, the quest for glory was always enough justification to wage war when he considered his own personal morality. He didn't give a thought to the lives that might be lost or the pain it might cause because he and his contemporaries didn't view war like we did. It's important to remember this and not to overtly begrudge him for it, as we've heard some historians do up to this point. Certainly, Louis by this stage had many unfavourable qualities aside from his blithe regard for the lives that war would cost, and these qualities would flare up repeatedly in the future, but we shouldn't consider him the bad guy of the story. He was merely the guy most able to bring about great cataclysms of war at the flick of a pen. Equipped with the resources he possessed and born into the war and glory-obsessed world in which he now reigned, can we really fault Louis for waging the wars that he did wage or for acting within the realm of ideology which existed at the time? In Louis's case, when making war, what mattered was the justification, to the public sphere at least. However paper-thin this was, there had to be something which he could use to assure his subjects and foreign opinion that he was not merely a despotic warmonger, even if in time, that is what Europe would come to view him as. So the War of Devolution was so-called because Louis used the terms of his wife's marriage to his advantage and cashed in on inheritance clauses. History tells us that in this case Louis likely cared not one fig about his wife's rights, 
and instead wanted the glory for his name, for his person, and for his kingdom. Similarly, it would be wrong to attribute what follows to Louis' wrath, in the case of the Dutch Republic. While it might seem tempting to do so, and while many histories present the Dutch War as the one in which Louis revenged himself upon the diplomatically slippery Dutch, we should not underestimate the desperately pursued quality which a few years before had also brought about war, glory. Just as surely as Louis invaded the Spanish Netherlands in pursuit of it, using his wife as an excuse, so now in the case of the Dutch War, could Louis pursue glory again, and to do so while arguing that he had been pushed to this point by the slippery Dutch who had betrayed their French ally and now needed to be punished, was a bonus. It was a brilliant line, really, and one which many historians have taken as literally as Louis hoped Europeans would take the other wife's inheritance excuse. So in short, I don't really buy the idea that Louis waged war on the Dutch because he was offended. I believed that he always wanted to wage a war against a foe like the Dutch, a prestigious but also militarily weak foe, and that the diplomatic antics of Johann de Witt and the Triple Alliance, which ended Louis's chance to exercise his free will during the previous conflict, gave him the excuse to break off the Franco-Dutch Accords, which had continued since the Dutch threw off the Spanish yoke. It should also be mentioned that the Dutch inhabited very tempting lands for a monarch like Louis, and that by attacking and subduing them, he would be privy to the lion's share of the spoils, which included better trade deals and opportunities for expansion, not to mention the strategic implications for the Spanish Netherlands, whom the Dutch were best positioned to defend. In my mind, then, we should be viewing the practical and ideological in the case of the Dutch War rather than the emotional. Put it this way, if Louis was the wrathful spirit that histories tend to paint him as during this war, would he really have been capable of scheming for as long as he did, or, to put it another way, waiting to strike for as long as he did? If wars didn't always have to make sense, why didn't Louis simply attack when De Witt first slighted him in spring 1668? Because of the Triple Alliance, you may say. Such numerous foes would have been an impossible challenge even for France. Perhaps, but as we'll see, Louis was nothing if not blindly insensitive on occasion to the realities of the balance of power. He was perfectly willing, in other words, to throw out reason in favour of the guiding principles which had so shaped his character. That's not to say he wouldn't have been immensely peeved when he discovered the secret articles of the Triple Alliance and the fact that De Witt was willing to strike against him if he didn't stick to his previously declared gains. But Louis would, in time, have seen this turnaround as an opportunity rather than a misfortune. De Witt's reported treachery, massively exaggerated as we of course know because the poor guy didn't want to do the Triple Alliance at all, was useful to Louis for justifying the ending of the Franco-Dutch Accords, and as though a great cloud had cleared, Louis suddenly saw the next place he could strike. Why settle for the Spanish Netherlands when you could have THE Netherlands? Ian Dunlop, a more recent biographer of Louis XIV's reign, provides us with a relatively simple explanation for what follows. When he writes, It the Dutch War, is commonly condemned as one of his greatest errors. It is not easy to say exactly what his objective was, but it is clear that he regarded the whole campaign as ministering to his glory, and that he thoroughly enjoyed it. 
How exactly the Dutch war represented an error of Louis' reign will become clear in the coming episodes, but the pursuit of glory, the idea that waging war against an established state like the Netherlands was going to produce this glory, and the fact that Louis would get to implement the lessons he had learned since his youth, all gel with what we know about his character. Additional facts, that De Witt could be blamed for torpedoing the alliance, that the Dutch could be upheld as treacherous and deserving of this enterprise, that the Dutch were a republic and thus repulsive to the divinely ordained Louis, that his cousin was bound to aid him, that there was great opportunities for plunder, and that victory would bring about advantageous economic benefits and the aftermath, these were all merely bonuses. Louis was not inspired to make war by any of these individual reasons, but they all made justifying the war, planning for the war, and launching the war easier. He couldn't merely attack the Dutch out of concern for the furthering of his glory in the public sphere, but he could use the aforementioned reasons to make what followed a little easier for Europe to stomach. As we'll soon see, though, that didn't mean that Europe had to like it. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.